So if this is your first time here at Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia uh, or listening in, you'll have to forgive me here for a moment, certainly because you came on a night that's a little bit different. Uh, if you don't know, we're transitioning a little bit here. I'm going to be serving in the ministry of the word on Wednesday nights, and I just feel like a, as a person, I have to say a couple things before we get started. Uh, obviously, my name is Mike Foch. Hello. Nice to meet you. Some of you might not know me. Uh, but Proverbs 27.2 says, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.12-13 that we urge you, brethren, to recognize, recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And before I start, I think I have to just say thank you to my dad. Yeah. For in this day and age, particularly if you have a large congregation with a microphone, uh, to be a normal guy who loves Jesus and is faithful to the word, that's pretty rare to have for 40 years. So uh, I think let's continue to remember and esteem him and love him very highly uh, for the sake of God's work there. So I just wanted to acknowledge that we're all beneficiaries of the Lord's work in his life. So also keep him in prayer as he's in a new place and sits in a new spot that he knows very well as nobody else's uh, here at church. So again, secondly, my name is Mike Foch. Again, I'm married to my lovely and godly wife, Rachel. I have two girls. Yeah, claps for them too. Yeah. Rachel's over there. She's happy. I'm pointing her out. Uh, I have two girls, ages 10 and 8. Um, you know, I, I just, some of you may not know me. I served in high school ministry here for a long time, so I was mostly in the back doing other things with your youth if you had them. Uh, otherwise, uh, I've been here since about 2003 or four, serving in the church in various capacities. You know, I, I feel like, third, before we get rolling, it's also necessary for me to thank you here, uh, particularly because I stand here by the grace of God, I know that, but the grace of God in my life has been largely expressed through the body of Christ here at Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia. I'm a product of the group, this group of people. Um, the I am as old as the church. Uh, my dad, I was born in August, and so my dad started the study in November of the same year. So 40, pretty close to 41 there, rolling along. So I always remember how old the church is. And <clears throat> I just say that to say, you know, I've, I've gone through children's ministry here. I've gone through junior high ministry here. I've gone through high school ministry here. I went in ninth through 12th grade to CCA, the high school that we have here. I have served under the older pastors here. Uh, thank you, older gentlemen, brothers, appreciate your service. I have served alongside some of the middle-aged pastor guys. We'll still call ourselves young, but 
Thanks, Brian and Trevor. We came on together. We were ordained at the same time. I have served over some of the younger guys and some of the people even in this room, especially this kind of section over here in various capacities. Uh, and, you know, I met my wife here. I met another side of the family, wonderful in-laws here. This group of people, this ministry, um, I'm a product of it. And I'm not just a person who showed up here. Uh, all of my life, I have been supported by this group, whether financially, spiritually, uh, physically, mentally, whatever capacity you can kind of think of. Um, and now my children are here. They're in the school. They're in these ministries. And I just see that as a pretty incredible testimony and, and uh, reality of the faithfulness of this church, the people here. So those of you who have been here, some of you probably here since the beginning at Arthur's, uh, I wouldn't remember you from there because I was like one, <laughs> but <clears throat> you may have had me in Sunday school or something. Thanks. Appreciate your patience. Um, but, you know, I walk in, in those prayers and I feel just grateful that I can be here and I can serve next uh, in this capacity. And again, that's, that's because of many of you here and because of the, the people of this church. It's not just Calvary Chapel, a place. It's a group of people. So thank you. I, I have to put that out there. Uh, I would not be here without your love and your prayers. So please do pray for me. Again, as I serve and, and try to love in the capacity that God has given me in teaching his word, uh, I, I know that that can't happen in just human means. Uh, I know that, and I'm fully aware, that there's no such thing as human succession in the kingdom of God. Um, it doesn't matter that Pastor Joe is my father. Uh, it doesn't matter how much natural skill or gifting or ability I have. And it doesn't matter if everybody in this church and all the pastors and everybody in the world agreed I should take this position. The only succession is the succession of divine life. So if God's not in it, then nothing matters. <laughs> so what we're trying to accomplish here, I know, is spiritual. And uh, I need your help in those things. So... Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 1530, you don't have to go there, but if you want to, please, this would be a good verse to remember. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. Please, can I throw that verse out to you? Uh, if the Apostle Paul could say that, certainly I need that. I know that you do, uh, so many of you, and I'm just overwhelmed and humble. Just have been praying for me and saying that. Thank you. Just shooting emails and let me know that. So, 
I appreciate that, and I know many do. But I would just ask, again, as I begin to serve this way, that you would continue to commit to do that. If you love our Lord, if you love my Father, if you love me, uh, if you love this body of believers, if you listen in on the app or the radio and this ministry has been a blessing to you, please just be praying for me as I begin. If you don't pray for our fellowship, can I encourage you to begin? This is a good spot. I'm starting. Why don't you start too? Uh, get a little journal, write your name and family on there, and then please add me and the rest of the pastors. Uh, we can begin together. If the Lord tarries, hopefully we can have another faithful run to him for another 30 or 40 years or whatever time he may give us. So one more thing before... I jump in to intro the book of Romans, if I can throw something out to be praying. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 say this, Paul speaking to Timothy, particularly as a minister, meditate on these things, the things that he's been giving him, give yourself entirely to them. Uh, pray that I would give myself entirely to what the Lord has called me to. That your progress may be evident to all. I, I do pray that you would see progress in my life. I hope that you can already see that, some of you who may have known me. I hope that as I teach through this book of Romans, it's the worst job I do on any book because I get better from there. I progress that you see that progress in my life. That he says, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine that I keep myself, my heart, and the doctrine that the Lord has given us in his word that we know so many are turning away from for one reason or another. Continue in them. For in doing this, this sounds good, right? You will save both yourself and those who hear you. That sounds like a good outcome that I could save in the process, both myself and those who hear me. So uh, if you need a place to start praying, I will take those scriptures there, and it will be a good place, hopefully, for all of us. So with that being said, if you can turn to Romans 1 now, and we're going to begin to look at this book, Paul wrote this incredible letter from Corinth, probably sometime right around Acts 20, verse 3. We've been there. A man named Gaius is his host, who we saw, who we see in chapter 16, verse 23, 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, a sister named Phoebe from Centria, which was an eastern port in Corinth, is apparently the one who carried this letter to Rome. We've been talking about it a little bit. And Paul's on his third missionary journey, which we just learned quite a bit about. The gospel has been preached around the world, particularly this area, for about 25 years. And there's a number of young Christian communities that exist, both that Paul planted and outside of Paul. This church in Rome is one of those churches that came to life outside of Paul. As we talked about in Acts 1, 
we're told, or excuse me, Acts 2, that visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, were there at Pentecost. And it seems they were saved, and they went back to Rome, and a Christian community was born there. And there was real life, so much so that in chapter 1, right in the beginning in verse 8, he would say that their faith is spoken of throughout the world. So this is an established fellowship to some degree. It's faced a little bit of persecution already. It's a mix of Gentiles and Jews, particularly as we see the names in chapter 16. There's both Jewish and Gentile names. And at this point in the storyline, Paul is headed to Jerusalem with a gift for the church, but he knows it's dangerous. He tells us in chapter 15, verse 31, where he asks this fellowship to be praying for him because the Jews are against him. We just kind of covered the story of what was going to happen. Paul does not know what's going to happen at this point as he's writing the book of Romans, but he does know wherever he goes, the Holy Spirit is witnessing he's going to face some trouble. He has some difficulty ahead of him. He tells us again towards the end of the book his goal is basically to try to find new ground to preach the gospel, and he wants that new ground to be in Spain. And if he can, he wants to stop at Rome on the way to Spain. That's his, his kind of general plan that he has. He, of course, is going to get to Rome, as we saw, a little bit of a different way than he expected. But Paul wants to pause there, certainly let them know about his ministry, but he wants to encourage the church. He wants to bless them. I think, <clears throat> particularly as we just looked through the book of Acts, one of the things that's understated about Paul's ministry is he didn't just plant churches, he built up churches. So he would stop at the places he had already preached the gospel and encourage them, strengthen them in the Lord. He would go, and when he would find disciples' places, he would do his best to encourage those disciples. So Paul had a heart for believers, period, particularly all over the world. And at Rome, we know he has a number of people that he knows there, and he's giving them a heads up on his plans. And certainly, I think part of that is they could support him along the way or not be shocked when he showed up because he loves them and he knows them. He wants fellowship. And those things are all part of it. But if we're wondering why he writes this letter, it's not said explicitly, but I believe what he's doing here is this. Again, his third missionary journey. He has traveled around. He has spoken all over the place to Jews and Gentiles. And he has quite a bit of experience at this point. He is not sure whether he's going to live or die. That doesn't seem to stress Paul out. It's just a fact. In fact, he said, you know, if I die and go to be with Christ, it's far better. So you can't really threaten a guy with death who's thinks it's better if he dies. So I don't think he's stressed about it, but I think he knows the reality that he's not sure if he's going to make it to Rome to see this group of people. So what he does here in this letter, and what I think makes it so remarkable, is he takes and makes a summary of all the things that he has learned and those discussions that he's had through his journeys and his time interacting with the churches. And as we even see in the book of Romans, you'll notice Paul is anticipating questions all the way through. 
It's like he's standing before a group of people and he already knows what this one person is going to say. And I know when I say this, there's going to be this type of rebuttal. And if you would say this, then this is what's... He, he lays these things out very systematically, but systematically in such a way that people would be listening and he's just bringing the next thing that he knows they would question. And I think this comes from his experience and he's thinking, if I don't make it there, I want to lay this out for them. What would be kind of the general consensus of the things that he shared when he went places? Those things, there would always be unique things. But I think you could say, hey, Paul, if you wrote down a letter that was, this was kind of your heart of what you shared when you went places, this is what you would get, this letter of Romans here. And it's what makes it such an incredible letter. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, when he wrote his book, True Spirituality, he talks about having a crisis in his own faith. And in his intro to the book, he basically admits, the things I wrote down in this book are the general things that I share when I went everywhere. If, if I didn't have these things, there wouldn't have been a Labrie, there wouldn't have been the reality of my own walk with the Lord. And those things were kind of a basis that he just built everything else off of. And I think in a similar way, that's what we have here with Paul. He knows I'm going, I could face difficulty, I might pass away, but there's this group of believers I want to encourage. He's had quite a life at this point, and he decides to begin to write, and the Holy Spirit, of course, leads him in this. The things that he knows are going to be most important, and so we find this incredible, very systematic, but also heartfelt letter to this group of people that he wants to get to see. I'll sum it up with this. Scroggy in his commentary, Salvation and Behavior, says Romans is the most systematic of all Paul's epistles. Its importance cannot possibly be exaggerated. Coolridge called it the most profound writing extent. Godet spoke of it as the greatest masterpiece of which the human mind has ever conceived and realized. The first logical exposition of the work of God in Christ for the salvation of the world. Luther described it as the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel. Calvin said that every Christian man should feed upon it as the daily bread of his soul. Tholuck called it a Christian philosophy of human history. Meyer of Hanover described it as the greatest and richest of all the apostolic works. Farrar said it is unquestionably the clearest and fullest statement of the doctrines of sin and deliverance from it, as held by the greatest of the apostles. Christosom used to have it read to him twice every week. The list goes on. This is a remarkable letter with incredible truths that are important for us and have been important for thousands of years. And it's broken down in such a way that just about everybody would agree. The first chapters, 1 through 8, cover doctrine. 9 through 11 cover what we call dispensation, a history of Israel. And 12 through 16 cover the duty of the Christian behavior. And in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he gives us the theme of the book, the central idea, which is the righteousness of God and how the righteousness of God works out then in 1 through 8 to salvation and sin, how it works out in regards to Israel's history and how God interacts in history and how it works out in our conduct. So uh, I obviously, and never as 
a human being going to be able to fully expound all these things and touch on every single thing that you could learn from this book. So I just encourage you, be reading, searching on your own, looking into these things and allowing the Lord to minister them to your heart in ways that he sees fit uh, because it's deep and there's some pretty incredible things there. So that said, let's begin here. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. By the resurrection from the dead, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the largest opening of any of Paul's letters. Between Paul in verse 1 and then go down to verse 7, to all who are in Rome, just seems like those two things should be connected. Between those two little phrases, we have even a pretty incredible thing right there that just shows you how active this man's mind was and the incredible spirit that God gave him. And there's uh, such simple insight into how Paul views his life and ministry. He just calls himself Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Again, Paul a little older at this point. He has served the Lord. He just looks at his life as a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ. Again, from the moment he was knocked off his horse in Acts chapter 9, the Bible tells us, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He, he became a servant. He was an intellectual person, maybe one of the most gifted intellectuals that ever lived. You couldn't have convinced him of anything otherwise. But the Lord steps into his life and in, into his life in such a way that he's not perfect, but his total life is shifted. And he now becomes a servant, a slave. My whole life and purpose is to do what you want me to do. And from that moment, Paul lived that out. And he could just simply call himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ because that was what he was doing from day to day. On his knees before Jesus Christ, he was nothing but a servant been bought by the Redeemer, and he was now going to be used at his pleasure. And he saw his entire life through that lens. Everything about his calling, notice, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. He was called and separated from birth. We have people in the scripture, Jacob, Samson, Samuel, Jeremiah, John the Baptist. From their birth, God had a purpose, a calling for them. 
Paul would say in Galatians 1, 15 and 16, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He, he recognized his whole life in this purpose. It's pretty remarkable, too, that he could acknowledge even his calling from birth, particularly because he wasn't a guy that didn't have a history. We know he had a history of persecuting the church, murdering, breaking up families, doing his best to stop the work of Jesus Christ. Honestly, he's probably the type of person that you would sit down and he begins to love the Lord and walks with him and probably think, man, God, how come I couldn't have been saved earlier? Why, why did you have to let my life roll that long before you kicked me off the horse? Couldn't we have done this on the rocky horse when I was a little younger and could have started a little earlier? You know, I think people, we can have those types of questions or feelings, but Paul saw all of it, even to the point where he would later say, God used me as a vessel for his own sake. I'm, I'm a, an example, even in how wicked a person could be, God could take me as an example of mercy. And, and his whole life was just service to the Lord. Even where I came from, when you called me, how it all happened, he sees himself as God's servant. Surrender to him in all those processes. Certainly with the, the Jewish influence, the Greek influence, the influences of the world that he lived in. In some ways, again, we could be pulled in different places. Maybe Paul didn't ever 100% fit somewhere, but he saw those things in his life as open doors to more people that the Lord would send him to. And in all of those things, he recognizes God's work in his life, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is separated to the gospel of God, which concerns his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which is why it is also in verse 9, you'll notice he calls it the gospel of his son. I'm separated to what the Father tells us about his son. The good news that God the Father would tell us about his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what my life is separated to to sharing that, which he ties this in here in 2 through 4, which I think is important, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Paul wants them to know that this gospel that he's sharing is from, notice, the Holy Scriptures, that it's tied back to the promises, the prophets, the seed of David. Paul is reinforcing the idea that the gospel that I'm preaching is not something that I'm just making up or brand new or some outside religion. It is the fulfillment of what God has always wanted from the very beginning. All the way in Genesis, talking about the seed that would come, all the way through the Old Testament, these things are the things that I'm talking to you about. Because one of the main uh, criticisms of Paul is that Paul was just jettisoning 
getting rid of all of Judaism and all of the truth of the Old Testament. This guy, he's just bringing in something totally new. And what Paul knows is, no, no, no. I am literally just talking about what has been the truth from the very beginning. I'm talking about what you see in the Holy Scriptures. They are different than the writings of the world. They're not to be treated in unholy fashion. They are set apart. People, one uh, commentator said, prefer so many other things. Why do men prefer a newspaper to the Scriptures? Or we could say a blog or an article or something. Because men's news are full of the spirit of the world, tidings of a fallen and condemned race, and men are interested in the things of men, but only God's people in the things of God. There's a lot of people that are not looking at the scriptures as the holy scriptures. We're deciding we can vote on them and change what they mean. If we have enough people on our side, they're holy, they're set apart. Paul said, a gospel that was separated to, it's from the holy scriptures. It's concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, referring all the way back to those same promises, reinforcing that idea, recognizing Jesus' humility in the seed of David, because as the seed of David, he should have been king, recognized. He was rightfully the king of the Jews. He was, in fact, put to death as the king of the Jews. But he was not received and recognized in truth as the king of the Jews. And in his humility, he came as the Savior. The Bible does say that he is going to come again, though, in that same power to judge the world, to be its king, to have every knee bow and every tongue confess that he's king of kings and lord of lords. He will show up again as the seed of David. But it wasn't what they expected at first. But it was what was promised. And he says he was recognized particularly, declared in verse 4, to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Declared is the same word used in Acts 10.42 and 17.31, both of them pointing to the risen Lord as judge of all humanity. Acts 10, 42, 43 says, He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that it is he who was ordained or declared by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. Again, Acts 17, 30 and 31, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commends all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained or declared. He, have, or he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Paul's point here is there, there was this kind of missing piece for the Jews in the Old Testament as they were reading it, as they were looking at it. There was these promises of a suffering servant. There's promises of the Son of God ruling and reigning, and they never knew how to quite put those two things together. 
That's why the disciples, when we see them talking about ruling and reigning and being in the kingdom with Christ, sometimes we could feel like, what are those guys doing? How come they didn't get it? No, they believed the scriptures. And that's why Jesus didn't just directly rebuke them. He redirected their questions to what was actually going to happen where he talks about being crucified and then being risen from the dead. But Peter couldn't get past the crucified part, so he's like, not nah, you, Lord. And even the disciples, after he's dead, are wandering, we know, on the road to Emmaus, saying, we thought this was he of whom the scriptures prophesied would come. We thought, we thought this was the one. This is where our hope was. But then something happened that they didn't expect. Resurrection. The Holy Spirit... Hebrews 9, 14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God? The Holy Spirit, the power of his Spirit, working, and Jesus Christ being risen from the dead. He is now declared. This is the one. He's the first one to rise from the dead, never to return. There were others who died, and who were risen, like Lazarus, but Lazarus had to return. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead, never to return, in his new resurrected body. And Paul is saying all the things in the Old Testament, the Holy Scriptures, the prophets, the promises, all these things that we were kind of confused about or we didn't know how to work together, God made it clear through the power of his Holy Spirit when Christ was risen from the dead, that he was the one who was going to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. And now every man everywhere has to repent and find salvation through his name. That's the gospel I'm separated to. There's nowhere else anybody can go, nowhere else where they can look. And he is going to fulfill his Davidic fulfillment on earth soon. Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star at the end of Revelation. He's still going to do his part. It will be known. And previous to this, they were confused. But Paul says, this is this is what I'm declaring. This is what I've been separated to. This is the person who knocked me off the horse. He's alive. And I'm just saying what has been true about him from the very beginning. And there's good news that I'm giving you in relation to God's son. Through him, verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. He was an apostle for Jesus' sake, through his grace. Of course, Paul would say, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 9-10. Because of God's grace that saved Paul, and made Paul an apostle and allowed him to participate in the Great Commission and be a part of God's work. He was seeing people saved 
brought to the faith and helping them grow as disciples in Jesus Christ, obedience. It was the goal of the whole thing, faith and obedience, two sides of the same coin that basically have to be working in every Christian's life. Paul will end this letter, Romans 16, verses 25 and 26, saying this, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began but now made manifest, again, all the way back to the beginning, to the current point where he is, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. This message about Jesus Christ, it was from the beginning of the world that Christians have. We don't have something that was made up halfway through human history. Our faith starts at the very beginning and goes all the way till today. And you and I are able, by the grace of God, to participate in the only thing worthwhile happening on the face of the earth. That is, a kingdom being called out to become like him. Risen from the dead, never to return. To be a part of a new heavens and new earth, never touched by sin. He tells them, that's what I'm a part of. To see faith and obedience among all nations. For his name, among whom, he says, you are also the called of Jesus Christ. You're a part of this too. It's not just me. They too were a part of what the Lord was doing. Beloved of him and of the Lord. He says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Hey, that's quite an intro. Listen, you guys are a part of something. You might not feel like you're a part of something big as you sit here tonight. I don't know what's going on in your life. And, you know, you're just probably thinking about, like, oh, man, I forgot. I need to get the car inspected. And, you know, oh, we didn't buy any school supplies yet. And, you know, we got all these different things kind of going on in life. But that you and I are a part of the story that started from the very beginning of time is going to be the only one that matters at the end of time. And we know we're a part of it because this one, the Son of God, has been declared the one who this is all about by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hey, this could all fall apart if somebody could come and prove to us that Jesus wasn't alive. But it's really hard to do when there's people who have faith and obedience in this name in every nation all around the world. It's a pretty incredible reality. And Paul says, you in Rome, I haven't been there yet, but you in Rome too, beloved of God, you're called to be saints. You're part of this. You're set apart. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is typical blessing and intro that Paul would give. Never, I believe, uh, just words for him. These, these were things that were real to Paul, and I think just became deeper. He didn't ever really need to change the words much because the meaning just got deeper as the years went on. 
And he extends those things to these believers. I think they would be blessed to hear that and read it. Now, verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if by some means... Now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Paul gets to some more practicals here, just talking about wanting to get there. He's thankful for the grace of God that he finds here in these believers. Um, I think Paul was Paul was certainly never afraid to recognize and call out faults. We know that about him. He would speak to churches about issues. Uh, he would call out people by name that he needed to who were false teachers. Paul was not afraid to rebuke if he needed to rebuke. But he was also quick to note any believer anywhere walking with Jesus and be thankful for the reality of their life. I, I think it's a good example for us. He was thankful to God when he saw and heard of these believers. He heard of their faith and what God was doing. And he included them, I think this is pretty cool, in his prayer. He says, without ceasing, I make mention of you in my prayers. Constantly. And it's, these are, some of these we know are people he had personal relationships with. But a lot of these people he probably didn't. And it's not as if Paul didn't have enough to pray about already in his life. Right? I think it's easy, it's very easy for us to pray about, right, that immediate circle in our lives. We, we know we got to kind of cover these people, our family and our close friends and our fellowship. But this guy's heart is so large that he just begins to include believers everywhere he hears that there's real believers on the face of the earth. He had plenty of churches to pray for, plenty of people to pray for, plenty of things going on in his own life, but he literally constantly brings these people into his prayers. And I think this is also just important to note. Notice these are people that are doing well. Their faith is heard of throughout the whole world. It's not that they don't have problems, but I think we tend to particularly think, I got to pray for the people who are struggling, which is great. We do. Maybe people that aren't saved or prodigals, and we should always pray for them. But I think it's remarkable how often Paul's praying for people that we might think we don't really need to pray for. Like, they're cool. They're okay. They're doing all right. Can't you hear? All the, all the stories are great about them. I can kind of use my prayers for somebody who's maybe really struggling. And I think in a great example, Paul realizes, no, every Christian everywhere needs prayer. And even those who are doing really well, I'm going to pray God's blessing on them. And that they're going to continue in those things. And, and he's so sincere about it, praying for these people outside of his normal circle, that he can call on God as a heart witness to the sincerity of his ceaseless prayer. That's pretty big. <laughs> if there's a place that I think any of us could become quickly convicted about, it is our prayer life. You can't, you can't get more sincere than calling on God as a witness to your prayer life. So it's, it's just an evidence of the remarkable heart that God has worked 
in this man as he's thinking of these people. And, and he admits that when he says, I serve him with my spirit in the gospel of his son. I have some argument where people are talking, is that the Holy Spirit, is that Paul's spirit? Well, the reality is without the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't be any of Paul's spirit anyway. So it's both. Um, he wasn't going to be praying in the flesh. That wouldn't be very helpful. So the reality here is this guy has a true heart for these people. He's not just uh, a guy who is theologically sharp that is going to lay out some really big theological things for intellectual folks, and that will be helpful for them. Now, this is a guy who loves people, and I think part of the reason he even has such remarkable things to share is because of how he sees them, how his heart is connected to them. And notice what he says he wants to bring, verse 11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Paul's arrival is going to bring spiritual gifts. Salvation, prayer, the word, the Holy Spirit. Paul didn't have a lot of material gifts to bring. He was going to bring encouragement. And notice mutual faith of both you and me. There would be mutual encouragement there. The Apostle Paul would be built up and encouraged. I think that's pretty cool, right? It's, it, the Apostle Paul wasn't just some person who uh, didn't also need encouragement from other believers in, in his life. I think we've all been in places where, particularly if you're trying to encourage other people in their faith, you could be around people who are less mature than you, and you feel like you're always pouring, 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 or they're unsaved, and you're pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, and it's really nice just to get around some other Believers that can just encourage you in the faith. Paul wasn't beyond that. And he was happy to be able to come and be a part of these believers' lives and be mutually encouraged with them. I just think, right, is this, is this the outcome of our arrival in a scenario? When I show up in somebody's house or in a group or in a social setting. What is it that I'm bringing? Paul, Paul said, I don't have the best casserole, but I, I do have something to bring. And he was going to be able to bring a blessing, an encouragement, a spiritual blessing to these folks that he was writing to. And he says, 13, now... I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. Paul, Paul says, I, brethren, again, he sees them as his family, all these believers he owns as his true family in Christ. I tried to get to you. So we don't exactly know where this was. We were just through the book of Acts. He had made, apparently, serious attempts to try to get to Rome. There were times where maybe he wanted to go somewhere else, where he thought, I'll stop to Rome here. But however that worked out, God had always changed his plans. Now, I think it's, it is also of note that the apostle was willing to submit his plans to God for change. His purpose was unchanged. Paul knew, wherever I end up, 
I'm supposed to preach the gospel, remain faithful to the Lord, be a witness for him. But his plans could be changed. Purpose, as a Christian, your purpose never changes in life. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, your salt and light where he puts you. Your plan on how that happens, that is subject to change. Sometimes I think we get those mixed up. We're like, well, I'm going to be salt and light as a Christian music rock star. And that's not working out for you. And you're like, but this is it. I wanted something good. God, how come I can't? Listen, plans can change. The apostles, the apostles' plans were just to go to places where he would most likely be beat up or possibly killed and preach the gospel. And his plans got changed. And there are times where he says, hey, I sincerely tried to get there. I wanted to be with you guys earlier, but God changed those things. I wasn't able to do it. I was hindered until now. And I want to come and notice he says, this is what he wants. Have some fruit among you also. He's looking for spiritual fruit. He's looking to see, as he said earlier, a spiritual gift or blessing given. Paul is not intending on coming to Rome as a celebrity to be taken care of. He didn't need a prearranged contract with the correct snacks in his dressing room. It's not how Paul was arriving. Paul, the apostle, said, I want to come and bring spiritual blessing and see spiritual fruit. That's what I want to see happen. That was his heart, most directly, in arriving at Rome with these people. That was his goal as he thought of coming there, as God finally allowing his plans to work together to get there, which we know again, he gets to Rome, but maybe not according to his plan. God's plan, yes, the way Paul might have thought, I think it worked out a little bit differently. But he certainly still had spiritual fruit. He certainly still brought encouragement. We see people that are saved, as he's writing in Philippians, he's saying, those of Caesar's household welcome you. His purpose, God's purpose, couldn't be changed or stopped. And surrendered to that, he could be confident that this is what would happen. Again, I just think this is not, this is not just for a one-case scenario why we have all this in the Bible so that we can know what Paul was like when he went to Rome. It's so that we as Christians, also saints, called into what the Lord Jesus has called him to, to play our own part, would be examples of this type of thing. What do, what do we want to see when we show up places? Is it all related to us? Or is there a heart to see spiritual fruit, see people encouraged, see God's work? Am I holding on to my plans so hard that God can't change them? Or do I recognize, God, your purpose is never going to change in my life. But if you want me to do something different here, I'll do something different. And I'll just serve you in that other place. And Paul could trust then that there would be fruit. If I'm doing what God wants me to do, there will be fruit. It'll be born. And he says in 14 that I'm a debtor, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. Paul, Paul recognized I have a, an obligation. Part of it was his personal call from God to live these things out in relation to both the Greeks and barbarians, 
the, the world was kind of split up for Jews. It was Jews and Greeks. For Greeks, it was Greeks and barbarians. So if you were a Greek, you spoke Greek. If you spoke anything else, it was like barbar. It was just some kind of language you were murmuring out there. So you were considered a barbarian. And Paul is saying, hey, I'm, I'm a debtor to everybody. I'm, I'm giving everybody the gospel here. I have I'm been called of God to come to preach, to suffer even, so that they can see the life of Christ, both to the wise and the unwise, to, to the learned and those who are not as learned, both to those who are wise in the world's eyes or maybe not as wise in the world's eyes. This gospel was for everyone, for Paul. It wasn't just for the intellectual elite, which Paul was, and he could have easily made it that in his own strength. But he realized, no, this is for everyone. Jew, Greek, barbarian, wise, unwise, I'm ready to come. So, 15, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. As much as was in him, he had no intention of planting in Rome per se, but when he got there, he was going to preach the gospel anyway. Same message for the Greek, again, or the barbarian, or the Jew, and it was the message that had been given a long time ago, that had been a mystery, but was now revealed in Christ Jesus, and he was going to give that good news and that message to everyone. Paul was you know, I don't, I don't know totally what it's going to be like when I get there, guys, but I'm going to preach the gospel when I get there. I like that bit. Wherever Paul was, he's like, I, I don't know exactly how this is going to go, but I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm locked up. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm free. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm with believers. I'm going to be preaching the gospel. The whole, the whole way he was, wherever he was, I'm going to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome also. And he would move on his way. He wouldn't stay there if God allowed him to, to head to Spain. But he knew he had to do that because, and we'll pause here, just reading these verses, and then we will get back to this next week. Here's why Paul knew that he would preach the gospel to those who were in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, the salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And Paul's going to move into some pretty incredible things. So let's stand. We're going to pray. I would also just say to you, if you happen to be here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can. The offer is there. Jesus Christ died for you, for your sins, so that you could be saved and that you could have life eternal in him. And all you have to do is believe that. Believe that God is satisfied in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. If you need that, you want that. You want to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Come talk to one of us afterwards.
come down here. Let us speak with you. We'd love to introduce you to Jesus Christ. Um, but for the rest of us, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. Lord, again, I thank you for this fellowship. I thank you for the people here. Lord, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you that you have brought us into, by your good news, life, eternal life in you, that we've been washed and cleansed, and that we could be your servants right where you have us. And I pray you'd allow us to be faithful stewards where we are in these days. You know that. You put us here on purpose. You're not shocked by anything in our day and age. And your Holy Spirit isn't intimidated by the world or the work in front of us. So fill us, Lord, afresh with your Holy Spirit. Allow us to walk in you, please you, to do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.